1: Hey, this is Tracy, and welcome in. Before we get started, let me do a quick update. Uh, it has been about two months since we have uploaded a, a podcast episode, and I'll take the blame for that. My regular job is in the field of real estate, I'm a real estate appraiser, and as you can imagine, that field has been booming for many, many months. That, and uh, coupled with the fact that Craig and I have been working Uh, back and forth on developing a couple uh, Nature Reliance School products of which I will be responsible for generating, manufacturing the products. It just didn't leave much time to get in here and edit the podcast. Things are starting to slow down a bit, at least on the real estate side of things, with the increase in interest rate and economy uh, taking some bumps. So we hope to get back into the recording and uploading of the episodes. Now, we're probably not going to be able to get right back into the weekly podcast. We're hoping for maybe a couple of months, every other week, maybe throw in a bonus podcast here and there, at least for the foreseeable future. So we're going to try to do the best we can and get back into recording and uploading. Now, today's topic is Mr. Coyote. We all hear him when we're out. We're out hiking late in the evening. We're camping at night. Everyone hears him yapping and barking. So we thought this would be a good topic of discussion. Fortunately, what I thought initially would be kind of the theme and the topics for the podcast didn't develop at all. And it really went into uh, a different direction, which I'm actually pleased with. So let's jump into it and get started. And Craig and I hope you like it.
0: Tracy, welcome to the show, dude. Hey, man. How are you? Good to have you on this side of the microphone. Not the editing side.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. It's been a little (laughs) while. We need to need to correct that. Don't we get a little more routine going? Man, you've been doing some great interviews,
0: man. I got a, I need to send this to you too. Uh, I got a really nice message on Instagram today about the interviews that we've been doing and, Mm -hmm. and, um, how, I mean, it was just humbling, real, real pleased listener out there. So, uh. Yeah, I'll send I'll send that to you.
1: This last one that you did with um Medicine Man.
0: Oh yeah, he's a good dude, isn't
1: he? Oh, the stuff that he put out was fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I've been hitting some of his uh liver pills. I've been taking a blood pressure pill too. Uh, it's he sent me well, I bought those two, but he had sent me an immunity pill back when I met him down in Georgia and said, Hey, just try these out. And uh, he got me hooked i mean he's he's a good dude
1: yep i've got a bottle of that and then i bought a bottle of the liver pill yeah yeah it's good stuff yeah it is but uh maybe i didn't start taking the immunity pill quick enough because i guess as of last week you and i got a little bit more in common than typical
0: yeah covid baby covid for all the listeners out there tracy and i both ended up covid positive um I shouldn't ask you that because it's about your family, but I'll say this my whole family ended up, every mom, my house got it. Uh, my daughter was first, and then my wife, and then me. Yeah, it's, it ran. Daughter about the same as I did, um, about a day and a half, mm-hmm. two days. And I mean, for a day, I was the nothing. I, I slept for 19 out of 24 hours. Uh, Jennifer's been sick for six weeks. It's, I had her to the hospital twice today trying to figure out what's going on with her. What about you? How's COVID hit you?
1: The youngest daughter, uh, tested positive and, oh, wow. um, and I tested positive. She only had a, um, maybe a little drainage, a little sore throat. Yeah. And that was it. No fever. Nope. Uh, huh? no, no cough, no fever, no headache. And so she did good with it. And then I had, I was about like you, man, that, that first full night was rough. Uh, fever and the chills, but the headache is what just knocked me off my feet. Mm -hmm. It was like someone took a baseball bat and just beating on my head for, you know, six, eight, 10 hours. (laughs) But after that, you know, day and a half of it and then everything just every few hours seemed like I felt a little better, a little better.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got a little drainage still now and that's Mm -hmm. about all I'm carrying with me. I tested again and, and tested negative but I've still got some of this drainage crap going on.
1: Well, it's, uh, um, Craig and I were talking before we went in cause I'm drainage. So maybe the audio might not be a hundred percent for this
0: one. <laughs> right. So we're talking about coyotes. huh, man, man, we are. I've got to say uh, you all, everybody listening in Tracy sent me some notes on this stuff. And I'm like, dude, this is, this is fantastic. I love it when we dig into stuff where you and I are learning.
1: Oh, I do too. It is, uh, I can tell you that this uh, Cody outline is not what I originally thought it was going to be. I was going to put a, a podcast together with, you know, physical characteristics and locations and how they breed and packs and eat and that's about it. But as I dug into it and um and started reading a book called Coyote America by Dan Flores, really kind of tweak my interest in you know there's more to this animal that we call coyote um and he's got a long long life for north america and i just started digging into it asking the whys and the hows and this is kind of what we ended up with
0: in all seriousness so what made you dig into it to begin with was there anything that kind of pushed you this way did you see a coyote and just made you think hey man why's he doing that
1: well yes actually um coyotes are in all states excluding hawaii Right, so they're from Alaska all the way down to Central America, all over the United States, every state, and then in, even in our bigger cities and and even smaller cities, towns. And I thought it was a topic that everyone could relate to. I can't remember the last time that we were out camping or doing anything overnight that we didn't hear coyotes, you know, right. barking and, and yipping at night. So I really thought this would be something that everyone across from coast to coast could relate to. Because we have people all the time come in and camp at night, and Craig does a, a wonderful job about uh, safeties and here's what you can expect. Because if you know what to expect when you're out doing this kind of stuff, you're not so susceptible about getting nervous and, and uptight. And one of the topics that you always talk about is, hey, you're probably gonna hear coyotes, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, yeah, you are, and you're gonna hear it in Colorado and Florida and Maine <laughs> right. and everywhere else. So. That's what kind of got me into digging into it.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was out in Utah. Well, when I was out in Utah, when I went out to Texas both, I went out at night and walked around. Uh, Texas, I was really, man, this is crazy. I was really wanting to see some rattlesnakes. And I thought if I got out at night, I would run across some. And I wasn't crazy digging around in bushes or anything. I wasn't doing that. But I figured if I walked along the road where I could see on both sides of the road, I would get to see a rattlesnake. Never did. Well, the whole time I was down there teaching.
1: Can't believe you didn't see one.
0: Oh man, dude! And I walked for two miles in the dark in Texas, just knowing I was going to run across one.
1: I don't know if I'd do that.
0: Well, I mean, I was in a <laughs> fl- had a flashlight, doing me wrong. <laughs> but um, the coyotes, man, in both places, it's just it, just for me being in Kentucky and then going to Utah and hearing how that sound will carry in Big Sky Country, where you know I might be hearing coyotes. I don't know how far away. I could hear them because, I mean, they were just miles and miles of flat ground in both places and then big, huge mountains. So, yeah, it's cool stuff.
1: Yeah, around here we have the hills. It kind of knocks the distance down a little bit.
0: Well, it makes it hard to hear where they're coming
1: from. Mm -hmm. Bouncing off the cliff lines. and Trying to figure out
0: Mm -hmm. where we teach classes in particular, everybody that's listening in, that it's interesting, as Tracy mentioned, things just bounce off of rocks particularly cliff lines. And we have a lot of cliff lines where we teach class there in the Morgan Menifee County line here in Kentucky. So, okay. Where do we start on this, man?
1: Well, I thought we'd start at the beginning and that is the fossil trail as far back as we could go. And here's something that I absolutely didn't know. So if we go back to the, and follow the, the fossil trail, Five point three million years ago, here in North America, the the canine, the canid, was the uh, which is the basis for the uh, like African wild dog, the gray wolf, the golden jackals, the dingoes, Mister Tracker who shows up in your (laughs) videos, Miss Mindy who's laying on the couch. That's where that fossil record shows up. About five point three million years ago. Here's the interesting thing: of all the evolutions that came out of that fossil record the coyote was the only canine that did not leave north america the wolf migrated out of north america with the land bridges evolved over a couple million years and then migrated back into north america the coyote is the only canine that did not leave north america
0: so it had plenty of resources here to stay the whole time
1: well, I don't know. I mean, obviously the jackal left and, you know, the dingoes and everything else left, and many of them did not migrate back. I guess it was just an environment that that set true to them, and, and they remained here. And even some of the articles that I read said that uh, the coyote yell and yeps is the original North American national anthem because they were here oh, wow, well yeah. before, you know, humans ever showed Anything up. Anything else. Yeah. I didn't know that. Never Never read anything like that, but I thought that was, I thought that's pretty cool. Um, and it's been here and we can't get rid of them.
0: They've got a long history of figuring out, I mean, coyotes kind of have a reputation of being able to, to handle a lot of different things anyway, and find food and, and shelter and and breeding habits and all that, no matter where they find themselves.
1: No matter where they find themselves. And we're going to get into that because a lot of that, that goes on. I had no clue, you know, that, that they did what they evolved to do and they do it quite well but the um coyote as we know it which is the the canis latrans somewhere and, and i've read different you know different articles on it but showed up several hundred thousand years ago let's leave it at that because there's some range there and the scientific name translates to barking dog and if you ever heard of the coyotes out at night man they hit that name nail the head didn't they the intelligence and the ability to survive has been developed and living beside human beings for many, many years. And, man, they they just moved. Whenever they moved east, and we're going to talk about why they moved east, yeah. those millions of years and the uh, evolution just carried with them. And, and they set up camp with uh, humans on the east uh, side of the Mississippi and, and just hasn't, haven't left.
0: So when you're saying and just say, hey, we're going to get into this mm-hmm. later. If I get into any questions that we are, you're saying they were side-by-side side with wolves and humans. You're not saying that they were domesticated back then in any way, shape, or form. They were just here at the same time. They were here at
1: the same time. Now, there have been some records in the 1800s as we started migrating the you know the white settlers, as we started migrating west, that some of the first American, the Native American Indians at that time did have some, some domestication of a coyote or two in camp. So, oh, wow, yeah, I think there was some domestication that went on, but not a lot. Uh, I never, I never got the indication that a lot of domestication of the coyote out west happened, but some did. Here's a very interesting fact that I, I, I found, I found kind of, kind of odd actually, but humans showed up in North America somewhere about 15,000, you know, thirteen, fifteen thousand 15,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at the animals that were here at the time, the mastodon, American lions, giant bears, all the different cats. Those humans at that time picked the coyote out of all of them to set up as a form of a deity for them. They, they kind of worship the coyote over all these other animals that were at the time. Now think about that. Think of all the Mm -hmm. the strength and the size of the different animals out there. And they pick this lowly coyote as a deity to be part of their culture.
0: I've heard some, people speak of native cultures and a lot of different and and there's so many different native cultures. It's hard to say all native cultures like this, but one thing that seems to be true is a lot of people have felt that coyotes were, I've heard this word mentor being used a lot. Like they almost taught humans things, maybe not in the sense that like we consider education, but there was a lot of observation that could be made from the native people watching coyotes do what they do. And then they mimic that behavior to do what it is that we ended up doing. Is that, would that be an accurate assessment um, from your, from your reading? Dan
1: Flores, I think he, he titled it or, or said it, said it this way. He said of all those animals, the humans at that time picked a coyote as an avatar. So yes, they saw that coyote and the way it operated, the way it survived similar to the, that the way that they did things.
0: So you've been saying coyote and sometimes I say coyote and sometimes I say coyote. When I'm around hunting friends, I usually say yotes or something like that. I, what's, what's, is there a right way? What's the right way? Now, I what's think this word th- the modern
1: day word coyote or coyote or yote, I think that just goes with whatever culture that you're around, whatever section of the United States that you're around. Dan Flores, again, the book Cody America, and I listened to a couple YouTube videos that he were on, uh, just to kind of get a more in depth of what he was saying. He says this is kind of the history of the name for the county. The Aztec had a name, and they called it Coyote, and and he spells it C O Y O T L with the sign L, Coyote. Then as the Spanish moved in, they attached the E to it, but they still called it Coyote. Then, as the white settlers moved west, and we're talking, you know, early 1800s, when we first encountered the coyote, we had no clue what to make of it. The Lewis and Clark, which documented their first encounter with a coyote, they originally labeled it as a fox, and then eventually they shot one, killed one, brought into camp, and they said, oh, hey, it's not a fox, it's a wolf. It's just a small wolf. So they came up and started calling it like the prairie wolf, the bush wolf, and, the, you know, the small wolf. They had all kinds of names for it. And then somewhere around the 1920s, um, there was a naturalist by the na- name of Thomas Say, and he gave the scientific name of the uh, Canis Latrans. And then
0: the 1820s, yeah. you mean? I think you said 1920s. Oh, 1820s, so. 20s, yeah, yeah.
1: And then in the 1850s, as we started coming more in contact with the people from the Southwest, they started referring to this, you know, coyote, and through our translation into American English and and everything, that's kind of where coyote comes from. Really, that the name coyote really didn't kind of stick stick until really up into the Late 1800s, early 1900s, That even back then, even in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, they still referred to it as the prairie wolf and the small wolf and the bush wolf, and it took a while. Here's something that I found really interesting, because if you ask people today, especially hunters, what do you think about that coyote? Most people would say what? What would you think most hunters today, how they would categorize the coyote? How would they describe it?
0: Wild, small, um, real well camouflaged. Is that what you're getting Worthless. at? Worthless. Oh, yeah. I can see a lot of hunters saying right. that. Yeah.
1: Worthless. Don't know why it's here. It serves no purpose. Anything like that. In in 1873, Mark Twain in his book Roughing, here's how he described the coyote. Talking about getting an animal getting off on a wrong foot. It says, the coyote is a long, slim, sick, and sorry-looking skeleton with a gray wolf skin stretched over it. A bushy tail that sags down with a despairing expression of misery, an evil eye, and a long sharp face. The coyote is living, breathing, allegory of want, always hungry. He is poor, out of luck, and friendless. Creatures despise him, and even the fleas would desert him. So scrawny, ribby, coarse haired, and pitiful. That book set up how the American people kind of viewed the coyote from that point on and Really, it hasn't changed a lot.
0: There is a tremendous amount of stuff in our early history that's like that. Absolutely, that is really forged. I don't know if "forged" is the right word, but formed. Maybe even a better. I just a, a less expressive word that we believe is just not true. Yes, <laughs> I mean this is another example.
1: Absolutely, and even in 1920, in the uh, this is 1920 in the Scientific American. The writer wrote, the coyote is not worth the price of ammunition to shoot it, but we should shoot one anyway.
0: It was a few years ago now, maybe three or four years ago, we had what I would consider a, an infestation of an invasive species of feral cats in my hometown. And I wrote an article in our local paper about it and said, keep feeding the cats and we're going to see coyotes in town. And then lo and behold, you know, it wasn't months, it would even, it was just a few months later, people were taking pictures of coyotes in the middle of big neighborhoods in town and, and all this stuff. And people were absolutely losing their fricking minds over it. And I wrote another one and said, listen, you all, (laughs) if you all quit feeding those cats and get rid of those cats, the coyotes will go away. They are feasting on those cats. And they did. And fortunately, Mr. Coyote, and what I'm saying is not from a negative perspective, the thing that I liked about Mr. Coyote, feral cats are one of the worst invasive species that we could ever deal with. Mr. Coyote took care of them for us. They wiped them out, man. I mean, I'm talking, there's one section of Clark County that probably had two, three, 400 cats, and these coyotes just wiped them out. They get a bad rap, but they shouldn't get such a bad rap.
1: Yeah, I've got a little more respect for them now after doing all this research than I did. All right. So
0: take us up beyond that now, looking at the the spread of these coyotes as we know them now, you know, in those early 1800s and, and where it takes us to now.
1: Let's say from 1820 to 1920. And we're really talking about the peak of what we're getting ready to just discuss here was from 1880 to 1920. During that hundred years, the American West engaged in the largest destruction of animal life. Period. We killed five hundred thousand gray wolves during that time, mostly with poison. Obviously, with other means, but mainly with poison. Two to three million horses, wild horses, were eliminated. I did not know did that. One hundred thousand grizzly bears uh, were eliminated, and we drove them further into the Rockies. The grizzlies bears uh, leaving only 1,500 by 1920. 15 million pronghorns were reduced to 13,000 by 1905. But the coyote didn't seem to disappear. And now check this out. In 1899, uh, Montana put out a bounty for 26,000 wolves and 30,000 coyotes. So they put these bounties out for... Uh, Hunters to go out and kill There are problems for the ranchers and everything. So in, in uh, 1899, it's 26,000 wolves, 30,000 coyotes, 20 years later, 1920, Montana put out a bounty for only 17 wolves Mm. and 30,000 coyotes. So over 20 years of putting this bounty out, the bounty remains the same. 30,000 in 1899, 30,000 in 1920.
0: So when you're saying they put the bounty out, they got that
1: or close to it. Yeah.
0: So the bounty was reached, but they were still so able to take care of themselves. They just bounced back that quick. And we're
1: going to talk about how they, how they bounced back. So that really takes us up to about 1920 from 1950 to 1972. There was a federal bureau called the U S biological survey and. They were kind of taxed with a solution a predator problem out west. They participated in the mass killings of bears, wolves, mountain lions, et cetera, using poison. Some 8.5 million animals killed. In the 1920s, the Bureau put out 35 million baits, took out most of the bears, wolves, and lions. 1931, the Animal Damage Control Act, uh, they were given $10 million over 10 years, specifically to eliminate the coyotes out west and they did not somewhere in the 1930s actually came up and said "Uh, we don't seem to be doing very good against the coyotes maybe we ought to study them so the 1930s is kind of the the first record that we have that they actually did some type of field studies trying to learn about the coyotes and the habitat and behavior and everything and then during the 1940s uh, world war ii now, that particular war had a lot of chemical warfare warfare to it. They took those chemicals and applied them to the war against the coyote out west and continued right on poisoning, trying to eliminate the coyote out west. So given the fight trying to eliminate the coyote out west, all they did was spread the coyote. In the 1930s, they moved, uh, coyotes moved into California. In the 1950s, they moved further into Canada, both north and east. By the nineteen nineties, coyotes were all through the South, uh, Southern states, all the way to the coast.
0: When do you remember seeing coyotes for the first time, or do you recall?
1: We never heard them during my high school years. Whenever we would go out in camp, we'd we'd camp down on the Red River, and, and I can't remember ever hearing any yips, barks, or anything. So that would have been, um, you know, eighty four, five, and six, I graduate in 86, then off to college and then come back. So it would have to be, I'm going to say probably early two thousands, maybe even, maybe even a little bit later than that before we, before I could.
0: So when you were camping back then, that would have been deep woods, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That would have been an in, cause
0: I mean, I was hunting them. I was hunting them in 85, 86, mm-hmm. but that was, that was the first time I remember And then it was kind of a, from our perspective, my family's perspective, they were new to the farm. We started farming that farm in 1983 and had calves that, you know, we had a calf that got killed by a coyote and it was sick. It wasn't a well, it it was going to die anyway. Is basically what I'm saying.
1: The calf. But when that happened, the calf, mm, you're talking about the calf was sick. Yeah. The the calf was sick. It was
0: going to die coyote advantageous predator, took advantage of that, killed it. From that point forward, my dad and my uncle declared war on them and told me to have at them. And that's what I did after school every day. I would hunt that farm. I mean, that's what I did every day when I come home from school. i get my rifle and i go hunt.
1: Did you trap them back then?
0: We could, but I didn't know how to trap very well. And I, I just didn't. I put some traps out, but I didn't, I wasn't successful. I didn't know what I was doing at that point in time with trapping. Box traps for rabbits and stuff, but not coyotes. They were fairly prominent. I would see them regularly, but my understanding is it's because they were hunting those open farmlands where the rabbits and, and rodents and stuff were in those, you know, open three, hundred, five hundred, a thousand acres over there type of farmland. And they weren't seeing them that much in the woods, like probably where you're camping is what I'm wondering.
1: I was trying to think, and I, I wish I would have talked with dad now to get a, a more secure date on it. I don't remember anything in the eighties. And of course I was off to college and, and, but so, yeah, it was more into the early 2000 before I I can remember hearing them and, and even maybe even seeing one run across a field at a distance, uh, that type stuff.
0: All right. So listening to you talk here, the, the question that seems to come up to me is why couldn't they be wiped out? I mean, what, what made them such a hardy little critter
1: that they just kept going? (laughs) Evolution. Yeah. I guess, would be the, the short answer Simply to good. it. Coyotes have a, a way that when they are harassed, their pup population increases two and threefold. Meaning this, if you take an area, their population is going to rise to that level of food source, right? At that level, their pup population is going to be, litter size I'm talking about, is somewhere between two and five, maybe six pups. If they are harassed, meaning if farmers go in and, and kill like the alpha male, the alpha female, then their pup size is going to go from 2 to 5 up to 10, 12, 14, 16. And they even have oh counted gosh. as many as 19 pups in a litter.
0: Golly.
1: I think that's phenomenal. So the coyotes have a, a ability to, one, be able to... Read the land and the level of food, and be able to level level their population out. But if their population is under attack, their pup size man will explode. I just had a conversation with a gentleman because I was telling him we were doing this uh, podcast, and he said, "Well, man, how can I eliminate them? I'm not sure you can. I mean, we haven't done it, you know, for since 1820. I, I just I don't know if we can." Right.
0: We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable Jetboil Stove System. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. There's just going to be a carrying capacity, and that carrying capacity is going to be. It's it. going to be
1: it. Here's something else that I found interesting. Under normal conditions, let's let's say before they're harassed, a a territory is controlled either by a mating alpha male, alpha female, or a breeding pair in a pack. And that pack doesn't have to be, but typically it's a lot of females. Or mostly females, and then maybe one or two males. Most of the time, the males kind of leave their home territory in search. Whenever you hear that yepping at night, you'll hear a coyote on, say, maybe this ridge. And then shortly thereafter, you'll hear coyotes yell on the opposite ridge or maybe behind you or in front of you, right? They believe that part of that yepping at night is to take a population survey. And if they yep at night, and they don't hear anything coming back that can trigger a hormone in the females to start up in the pup population
0: that's wild as heck is it done for other reasons too or is that the primary reason or the only reason they're doing that
1: whenever their population gets stable their pup population goes back down
0: no i mean the the yipping and yapping is that the are they just doing that census taking well or are they doing other I stuff they're, too i think
1: they i think the a, a good portion of it from what I read is census taking and location. They kind of want to know, hey, are you in your territory? Because I'm in my territory. Type deal. Mm-hmm. Now the coyotes have a evolution adaptation called fission and fusion strategy. And there's only 19 animals that have this ability. And humans are one of those 19 animals. Here's how it works. A coyote can work in a fusion setting, meaning that the pack is fused together, but if they're pressured, that pack will separate and then they can operate in a fission strategy, which means either single or, uh, as a pair and humans have the ability to, to do that as well, to get through and survive. So if you're in a territory and you put on a lot of pressure, even if you bust up that pack, you're not going to destroy them. Wolves have to have the pack in order to survive. Really, uh, Coyotes don't have to, they can live and survive in that fission strategy. And then once everything settles down, then they can come back together.
0: You mean completely solo or they always try to bust up and have a mating pair here, there, and everywhere. They'll do both. Hmm. So again, trying to put together what you just said, typically your males are going to go off on these solo adventures and, and probably exist on their own. Typically. Until they- typically,
1: but don't have to, uh, some males will remain with the pack. But typically, the males will um, branch out. We're going to talk about some of that movement here from a study. Um, here's an interesting fact. In the 1970s, a study was concluded that you could take any given territory or range and eliminate 70% of the population every single year, and you will not reduce the overall population. You could kill Holy seven God. out of 10 coyotes in any one given range every year, every year, every year, and you're not going to reduce their population. Wow. That's amazing to me that that would go on like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause they don't, they don't have the cognitive thought that we do, but man, they sure do have extra perception beyond what we have. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, they can perceive that the whole pack is totally different and the whole entirety of the ecology in which they live has changed. And, you know, we, I mean, this is something we teach in a class. <laughs> it's just that, okay, this ecology over here is different than that one. We have to teach it to people because it's not, it's not something that we're, you know, born with to, to yep. recognize. That's for
1: sure. And I think that, uh, you know, all this came from the actually living with the wolves because the wolves are such a, a predator to them. And they've had to adapt and overcome. If not, the wolves would wipe them out. And they just have that ability to to move and separate mm-hmm. and come back together. And I kind of equate it to like fighting water. You know, you just you just can't, you can stop right. it here, but it's going to go there and just keep flowing. Mm-hmm. Kind of changing the, right. the flow of a river or something. This just can't be done. So to talk about this spread of it, I think we can kind of come down to two things. And this is... Every article I read kind of agreed with this, at least these two two things. We eliminated the wolves, which eliminated the predator for them, for the coyote. Completely eliminated them. And then the other thing is we tried to kill every single coyote that we could, which triggered those evolution adaptation. And whenever they hit it, they hit it hard and just kept on going to a point where in the early 1800s, the coyote range was, was, North into Canada a bit, and then down into maybe a little bit of Mexico, what we call Mexico now. Now there is a 7,000 mile range, like from the Arctic Circle all the way down to Central America is the range, and from coast to coast here in, in North America. So we have definitely, uh, we've been, you know, settlers and government and, and farmers and everything else, we have definitely done our part in pushing the coyotes out.
0: Where we tried, <laughs> they just spread and stayed there anyway.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's just a f- fascinating story, really.
0: All right, so let's get into. I mean, we've been looking at coyotes as a as a whole, really. Let's let's get into these guys more specifically. If you don't care mm-hmm. on some of these very specifics on their, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to call it, but basically, maybe some of their behavior traits and their body size. I mean are you know how big are they how little are they what kind of coloration do they have and all yeah. that sort of stuff
1: so in trying to come up with a typical body shape size color virtually impossible there's 19 subspecies of the county so you can imagine there's a wide range of characteristics uh, across the united states but generally speaking the further south you go the lighter in color the more uh, lighter red that you get the uh, more of the brown that you get and then the Farther north you go, the more darker colors you get. Uh, east of the Mississippi, the most dominant species of the coyotes is the eastern coyote. As of 2010, there was a study. They did a um, DNA studies on, on, on all this. Uh, they said that the eastern coyote genetic makeup is fairly uniform. So, so they have their population is at a point to where they've kind of uh, come together and uh, with minimal influence from the eastern wolves or western wolves eastern coyote ranges from 30 to 55 that's male and female 30 to 55 pounds 48 to 60 inches nose to tail as they spread uh, into canada and went eastward they started to breed with the the last remnants of the uh, red wolf and the timber wolf to the point now where there is a dna study in uh ohio on the uh, eastern county there and they determined that the eastern county had 66% dna similar to the western county 11% to the western wolf 12% to the eastern wolf and 10% to the domestic dog so the eastern county subspecies are definitely larger and they and, I would say based on the research, probably average of about 20% larger than the Western coyotes gives you, give you some idea.
0: Okay. There is some truth to this interbreeding with domestic dogs too. It sounds like then we're going to get into that too. or is? Um,
1: We'll touch upon that just a little bit. Generally speaking, a species will not breed outside of itself as long as it has a strong population. When you start getting these crossbreeds is whenever the population is very very low. So you can imagine as the coyote left uh, the western plains and started heading east, the population was real small. So the breeding for domestic dogs right. and any type of wolf remnants that you know that they could come across. Um, matter of fact, the the red wolf, which is in eastern uh, U.S., is much, much closer to the coyote than like the gray wolf out West. And so, so yeah, they definitely have uh crossbred, but the study indicates that the population of the Eastern coyote has reached a point that they're no longer crossbreeding, but there is DNA remnants, you know, within the Eastern coyote kind of interesting.
0: So I'm just, just hypothesizing on my own here. So those listening, I'm not saying this is true. Just saying this out loud, it would seem like, When they start to, if they have to bust up a pack and you've got a bunch of solo coyotes over here going off on their own, that would be the most opportune time for them to interbreed with a domestic dog because they're seeking breeding stock. They might not be packed up with one another. And that's when that gets introduced. But when everything's healthy and carrying capacity is where it needs to be, everybody just stays where they're supposed to be.
1: Everybody has a role and they play it as long as that everything's fair. Mm. And the breeding portion of it, so let's go back to, uh, we just talking a little bit about territories and, and packs. Coyotes have a territory, and they stay in that territory. And that territory is controlled by a alpha male, alpha female, and they are the breeding pair for that territory. Studies have indicated, <clears throat> we're going to get into the, the study here in a little bit, but studies indicate that they'll typically stay together multiple years. Some of them will stay together many years, and some of them will stay together one year and gone the next so there there's a fluctuation there they uh, raise their pups and wean them and some of the pups will take off most of those are are males that will leave to find a new territory and then some of them will stay with mom and dad and again but if a pack is formed there's only one breeding pair in that pack per territory that
0: blows my mind Uh that absolutely blows my no clue the male's not the male's not breeding all the females in that pack Uh True. He's, he's just breeding okay. her that, and okay. We're going to get into how often they have a letter, yeah.
1: but let me, let me okay. talk about this okay. a little bit. Let's say that you have a pack out there and Mr. Farmer eliminates the alpha male
2: mm-hmm.
1: that triggers the naturally the, the alpha female is going to find another mate, but that triggers all the other beta animals in that pack to start breeding as well.
0: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So you kill the big dog and everybody's having babies.
1: Everybody wants to be that alpha, right?
0: Get out of dog. It
1: triggers man. something in them. So in a given territory, let's say a, a, a 20 square mile territory, you got mom and dad breeding. If you kill dad, you may go from one breeding pair to two breeding pairs or three breeding pairs. So you just up, right. up population quite a bit. Dag-on, I'm man. telling you. So this territory, the study that we're going to be uh, referencing here in a bit, which covered Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama, they tagged a bunch of uh, coyotes and deer and and everything, did this big study. Their territorial ranged from uh, two to five square miles all the way up to 15 or 20 square miles. And that that would depend upon the terrain and food sources and whatever they could sustain. Mm I think within that study, they had one territory that was 0. 0.4 square mile.
0: Gosh. Hey, no joke. I can see that at Jay's. As much, as much stuff mm-hmm. is there, I can see them not leaving.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I can see them hanging out in, in that holler down there that we talk about all the time, and there, there's no reason for them to leave because there's just stuff there all the time.
1: And you say it all the time. You know, survival is a lazy man's game, right? So if they mm-hmm. don't have to travel but a mile or half a mile to to sustain themselves, why are they going to travel 10 miles? These territories are are, uh, protected. They're not as aggressive as the wolf, but they do protect these territories, and they'll run off trespassers that come in, other coyotes. Uh, Two types. One is a residence which stays in the territory, and then you got these transients that are out and about. And these transients... Basically, roam until they either do one of two things: they either die, or they find a the territory. Right? I mean, it's, he said that's only only two outcomes for them. These transients, which which are these you know um, nine month to year old pups that are pushed out of the territories, they will either uh, more or less pick a line and take off walking, like they one of their collared. Uh, animals was shot 300 miles away from its original home territory.
0: Dang. Yeah. So it was just kept traveling, trying to find that, that, uh, uh-huh. hospitable environment for them to find enough shelter, water, and food.
1: They just, mm. they picked a line and just basically. And took again, off are walking.
0: these typically these transients, are they typically going to be the males or am I missing what you were saying? Typically?
1: Earlier? Yes, typically, but not always.
0: Right. Yeah, sure.
1: Sure. And then if they don't basically pick a line and just take out walking. They do um best way I describe it is a walkabout. They just kind of keep on walking in areas until uh they find uh a territory that they can take over. And he described it as this. He said, think of territories as a jigsaw puzzle. And you have all these uh lines that connect each puzzle piece, right? As they come together. These transients will travel those corridors staying out of the heart of the territory and just basically walking between the territories. And they'll just keep walking and walking and walking until, again, they either die or uh, Mr. Alpha Male gets killed and then they slide right into that territory and try to take over. So, goes back to this. Mr. Farmer kills Mr. Alpha Male. Another male will be there within one week to two months, that spot will be filled because they estimated that between 30 and 40% of all coyotes out there are transients. They are looking for that territory to take over and they fill it and they fill it very, very quick. What else about breeding? They um, typically breed February and March and nine weeks later, they produce their litter. By the end of the year, they're trying to wean them and kick them out.
0: So if they have been on this heightened sense of, all right, we got to put out puppies. Will they just continue to do that every nine weeks throughout a year and have multiple litters in a year?
1: They'll raise those. Yeah. They'll raise those pups all year. Pups are born blind. It takes them 10, 12 days to get their eyes and um, they'll be on the mother's milk. And then, you know, they'll, the parents will bring in and regurgitate the food. And then somewhere around October ish, they will start pushing them out a little bit. And, and he said, it, you, you know, it takes two or three months for, for that to work. Either they're going to leave or they're just going to fall in line and be part of the pack.
0: You mentioned mother's milk and ger- regurgitated food. What kind of things are these critters eating? Well,
1: I listened to a gentleman by the name of um, Michael Chamberlain, several degrees in, in and around wildlife and forest. One of the most informative podcasts I've heard about uh, with regards to coyotes, he was part of this tri-state uh, coyote research that covered Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. And if if you don't mind, out of respect for him and the work he did, I, I copied a little clip from that podcast and we'll play it because he does a real good job of explaining mm. uh, their their diet. When he explains it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and I, I'd be interesting to get your take on it. So. Let me play it here. Yeah.
3: If we're talking here in the South and the East, what we found in the in the tri-state study, which was Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia, is that deer was by far the dominant thing they ate year round. Not just and not just you know roadkill or or hunter kill deer. All year round, they consumed deer more than any other prey species. Depending on the area and year. In season, you see all sorts of fluctuations, but without without a doubt, it's it's deer, rabbits are a key prey item. Small mammals like rats and mice, um, and then fruit. Fruit is a is a huge prey item for coyotes. Particularly right now, I mean, if you're if you're a bow hunter like I am, and you see persimmons falling, you're like, oh, hmm. oh man, that's money right there, baby. I got to, go to see what's under <laughs> that, you know. And, uh, well, coyotes know that too, and they they love persimmons, and they'll gorge on them. Same thing in the spring when you get blackberries and blueberries. They, what we found through a number of studies is they'll almost shift their diet entirely to eating that fruit when when it's available. That's what they eat, and then and that makes sense. I mean, it's easy to pick up, and there's no cost to you. You know, don't chase it. You just you know just go eat it, and you move on. But but if you look just across the board, it's, almost in kind of in ranking. It's um it's deer, rabbits, small mammals, and, and then when they're available, it's fruits. Uh, in some areas you see, you know, you see some other things. Birds don't appear very often at all. Occasionally you'll find songbird remains or something, or chicken houses if they're in the area, they'll of course eat chickens. But by and large it's deer, rabbits, rats, mice, and then fruit.
1: Okay. So whenever I heard that, I knew deer was on the menu, but if you'd asked me if that was the staple, I, I wouldn't have said that I would, I would have thought it was something else.
0: Now. So how does that, I mean, I know you listen to this one, dude, does that play out? That's in that three state area of Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Is that true? You think for us here too, or, you know, I'm thinking as you go out West, it's a to- totally different set of animals that they I would think have it's to totally different on. set.
1: As a matter of fact. If you want to, I've got another two minute little clip here, and he talks why they think the deer is so prevalent. And I think you're 100% right.
0: Let me make it. Can I make a guess? Deer are smaller down there. Is that okay?
1: All right, let's see what he says.
3: When they came into the South, they took over the niche of the red wolf. So, in the absence of the red wolf, who ate primarily deer, they now are the top dog in this area. So, you've got an animal who there's a lot of deer on our landscape and then and what we found which we we can get into is it looks like coyotes place their territories in many ways uh in a way where they can maximize their encounters with deer and that makes sense because deer you know a whitetail is energetically it's a big bang for your buck if you can no pun intended if you can If you can take down, particularly an adult, or if you're in an area that's that's got a lot of fawns being produced, you can catch a lot of stuff real easily and not put much energy into it. And therefore, you can maintain a small home range. And by maintaining a small home range, you don't burn much energy. It it makes sense for a coyote to, to find a spot where they can hunt effectively and deer are the biggest bang for your buck from an energetic standpoint. So, and then if you factor in, um, so coyotes—I I probably should have mentioned this earlier—but coyotes have a pretty cool ability. They, you know, wolves are, are are group hunters. They they typically hunt as groups. But coyotes don't have to. They they will, and they can take deer alone. They don't have to to be in a quote unquote a pack or group to kill a deer. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've watched them a single coyote kill a deer, chase it down and kill it. So they they have the the ability in many situations in the south and the east to kill deer on their own and they can also hunt as a group. So if you've got a lot of deer running around, it kind of makes sense that you would target them when you encounter them. So that's that's and that's kind of what our data show.
1: Have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. or pack?
0: Me and Mike Pointer saw it together. Oh, really?
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. On yeah, Jay's
0: I mean, yeah. farm. And that, and we saw that happen. And I've seen it. I've seen one take down a deer in the woods in Henry County. By itself? hmm Yeah. And it was a big one, too.
1: I remember Laney telling me that he's seen them before. Come out of the woods and hit like a field and just and run. He said that deer would be uh, breathing so hard, it, it wasn't going to last much longer. hmm And that. You know, that coyote right. right behind it, just trucking along, just waiting till it yep. wears itself out.
0: That was what, uh, that deer that we saw that day, me and Mike and over at Jake Eaton's place, that was one of the biggest bucks I've seen. And that was one of the biggest coyotes I've ever seen at the same time. I mean, they were just mad. I mean, I, I literally, and I'm not the type to say things like this, you know, that <laughs> I'm kind of counter to this, but I thought it was a wolf when it came out of the woods, man. It was so big. Really? And I've seen wolves in Alaska, and I know how big wolves are. When I saw this thing, I was like, "Dag gone! That's that's got to be some sort of wolf hybrid or something, man." Dude, I, I was seriously. You're gonna you're gonna think I'm joking when I say this. I could easily easily see that deer or that coyote weighing 200 pounds. I've seen a lot of coyotes, man. This thing was. I mean, when I saw it coming off the back of this deer, we saw it coming off the hill behind that cabin, and. The first time I saw it, it was on the deer's back. It was on it. And the deer got away from it. Deer took a big, I can see it right now, man. The deer took a big bound. And when it did, the coyote fell off, literally fell on its back and rolled and everything. Got back up, just kept right on. And I mean, the deer is running right at me and Mike and his two boys. I mean, I done pulled my pistol out because I thought, I thought they were going to run us over. And I was just going to shoot in the ground to try to scare him. And fortunately, the deer saw us, took a 90 degree away from us. And the coyote went, the coyote couldn't see us because he was right on the tail end of the deer. And when he got down there and that deer turned, the coyote saw us and turned around and went, I mean, 180 degrees right where he came back from, which is that big hillside up behind so he that cabin.
1: out on the meal then.
0: Dude, he was, he was getting ready to chomp on him, man. And I mean, the th- in my thinking is. He would not have done that if he didn't think he could take that big deer down. This is a big buck. It wasn't as big as those two big, two or three big bucks that we've seen at Jays. You know, with the ones I'm talking about that are massive, but it was a big buck and he wouldn't have jumped on it if he didn't think he could take it down. I mean, they don't waste energy. I wouldn't think think no more than they have to,
1: especially with the number of uh, doe that were out there.
0: Oh man. It must've been opportunistic or something. It's just, it like, uh, you know, mutual of Omaha out there that day, man, it was wild. And, and I was out trying to help Mike and his boys, just Mike, for those that are listening, Mike, you all know who Mike is. He's a, we've had him on a podcast before. He's a director of EMS here in the state. And he called me up one day and said, Craig, I need some stress relief, man. Take me and my boys out and show us some stuff. And and the boys, the boys, after they saw this were like, all right, what do we get to see next? Mr. Cottle? And I'm like, you ain't never going to see nothing like that again, <laughs> boys. I mean, that was it. I could turn around and go home right now. <laughs> They ever want to see a mastodon or something. I don't know. what They ever
1: want to see little bobcat jump out on them or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, no joke, man. So
1: yeah, that's the deer, man. Um, I've got one more clip if you want to listen to it. He talks about um, the within the diet the fawn versus adults.
0: Yeah, I want to hear that, and I want to ask you because he hadn't mentioned yet. I want to ask you okay. about wild turkey too, but I want okay. to yeah, so play so that. So this deals clip.
1: with um, fawns and adult deer.
3: So what we did is we went into resident. Territories. We went into the center of these areas where these breeding pairs were, and we collected scat. And basically, then once you collect it, you, you wash it to get all the stinky stuff out of it, and you just have hair and bone left. Well, you can, you can take the hair, and you can look at it under a microscope, and you can, you can actually measure the diameter of it. And you can very clearly distinguish whether it's adult or fawn what you see is as you would expect. Once the fawning season gets here, which in the south at this point, it it seems like it's a quarter of the year. Um, (laughs) They started eating fawns in in April when a few start hitting the ground and and they're they're eating them in May and June, July and August and, and September. And then all of a sudden, those fawns shed that coat Right. They they shed that that coat and we can then no longer distinguish fawn from adult. So by the time it gets into, say, hunting season, that it, all the hair looks like adults. So at that point, we can't really tell whether it's a, you know, it's a six month old deer that's with mom that gets caught. We don't really know. We just know that it's that it's a deer at that point. But it, it's very clear that once fawns become available, that's what they eat. And then the rest of the year, they're just just eating deer, and we can't
0: really tell one from the other. Mm. Did he say the diameter of the hair is what they were measuring to determine the difference between fawn and and adult? Mm. Dude, that makes me want to start I mean, I I don't think I can measure that. I'm not that uh, scientifically equipped, but it sure does make me want to start collecting some more coyote poop and at least washing it out to see what all is in there. I usually pick it apart when I see it with sticks or something, but I never thought about just kind of washing it.
1: Yeah. I guess that would expose everything that's in it. Yeah. So, yeah. We have, um, we definitely have coyotes here at the house. And I have two persimmon trees out by the road. So I set my trail cam out by it. And, uh, let's see, uh, three animals showed up, uh, two doe, one rabbit, two coyotes. Every Everything's time coming to it. They are right there on that same path, coming right to that tree, uh, two trees, but they hit those trees every single time. Whether they come uh, from the field or across the road, they come to those persimmon trees and then bounce off of it and take off.
0: Mm, That's wild. So what about the turkeys, dude? Did he say anything about the wild turkeys?
1: (laughs) Answer that question before I started this. I would have said, yeah, absolutely. I, I would imagine coyotes are devastating the turkey population wherever they are the study that he ran um, and collected data on said no in terms of actually eating. But what he said was that they are still causing devastation within the population of uh, turkeys from stress. They are constantly harassing them. And obviously they get into some of the nests and, and disrupt the eggs and everything. But the turkeys fully know that the coyotes offer danger to them and it and the turkeys are constantly under stress which hurts the population hurts the uh, number of eggs that's laid and going forward so they do hurt the turkey but they're not necessarily eating the turkey
0: you know i can see yeah i've run across biologists on occasion that have almost an animosity wildlife biologists what i'm talking about almost an animosity for hunters that take ownership and helping conservation and stewardship. They're like, hey, you guys don't really have as much role to play as you. I mean, I've run into wildlife biologists like that. They're looking, saying hunters don't play as big a role as we would like to assume that we play. And I listen to stuff like this and I can kind of see where they can get that mindset on some things. Cause it seems like Mr. Coyote's going to take care of himself, <laughs> no matter what we do to it. There's nothing we can do to it. Straight up, there's nothing we could trap and hunt every day, and they're going to come back if there's food for them. There's if there's carry capacity if for there's them, they're food they're be they're there, they're
1: coming. And with 30 to 40 percent of all counties out there being mm. the transients, it's not going to take long for them to fill that spot. The conversation that I had with a gentleman earlier, and that's what I told him. And <laughs> I said, if you want to increase the, the population of the, your counties on your property. Go out and kill one or two, because you're going to trigger bigger pup litters, and you're going to create more breeding pairs in that given area. And if you mm-hmm. were happen to, um, you know, going back to eliminating seventy percent of them, you're still not going to. You're going to have to get above that seventy percent. You know, eighty percent, ninety percent. I said, even if you're lucky, let's say you're lucky to, to in your territory to eliminate all one hundred percent of them. You still got those transients that, that's going to be out walking within a couple of minutes. Yeah. They're going to couple, fill the gap. A couple of months. Within two months, they're going to, be right months, there they're going to fill the gap. Reading and take right back off.
0: I think it's hard sitting here considering it on my own, trying to be, you know, stewardship mind and trying to be a part, a positive aspect of mm-hmm. conservation and stewardship. There's some animals out there that we know that we play a very positive role in. There's other animals that we know we play a negative role in a big one. I think of is raccoons, you know, deer hunters are constantly putting um, bags of corn out. It's one of the worst things that could happen to the raccoon population because it's just easy food for them. But it seems like Mr. Coyote just couldn't give a crap less what we do. The environment's going to win out with Mr. Coyote. If nothing else, that coyote is the, it it might be the predator that no matter what our effect is, maybe that's why it's here. No matter what we do, they're going to be here doing her thing
1: based on everything that i read here and listening to the uh, mr dan flores in his uh presentation of of his book and and youtube videos yeah that's pretty much the conclusion i mean we've been trying to fight
0: yeah uh mr coyote
1: for since 1820 1810 and, and it is not going to happen, gonna happen man. i mean you look at uh with social media now you can find pictures of um Coyote's on buses.
0: Oh, dude, man. I used to see them in Chicago all the time. When I'd go up there every month to train, I'd see them right there, but next to where I was training. Every time I was there, every time you go out at night, you'd yeah. see one somewhere. I
1: mean, you're talking about, um, streets, man, uh, bars. I'm trying to think of all the pictures that I saw, um, in every.
0: You talking about inside yes. a bar? Yes. And stuff? They
1: went in and there's this picture of the you know, sitting up there on the, on the bar itself. Whenever the owner got, he snapped a picture of him. Um, Every little park in these cities, in and around these cities have them. They had one on uh, subway. Think about that. And uh, he was just curled up in the corner sitting there. Like, you know, I'm just waiting for the next stop. don't know where you're going. I just, I I don't see it. I don't see it. And they have that ability to come into these bigger cities from what, I've read, uh, they're equating it again, going back to having to live among the wolves for, um, you know, years upon years and dealing with, um, Indian camps and, and establishments and being in and around them. And it, it's just something that has evolved within them and they've got it figured out.
0: You know how to adapt about as much as anything else I've heard of. Man. That's pretty wild, dude. Dude, I can't thank you enough for putting this together. This has been fantastic. I, I thought it was
1: very interesting. And uh, again, once I got into it, it kind of turned in a different direction. But uh, there are still a couple of different topics that I didn't really get into. Uh, we hear the terms coy wolf and coy dog. And I'm going to research that a, l- a little bit going forward and maybe put a short podcast together with that because I think it's interesting. And then the other topic I want to research a little bit about is... Um, human attacks because if you would have asked me how frequent do coyote and humans interact to the point of being attacked i would have said oh so rare you wouldn't ever have to worry about it come to find out there's far more attacks out there than definitely is being reported in the news so uh, i'm going to research that a little bit and try to dig into that and see if there's any statistics that i can identify and bring out to to our listeners
0: yeah that sounds real good well um i don't know what else it would be but if we covered everything i tried to go through our notes here man i appreciate you doing this i've learned a lot that's for sure it's just never ending isn't it knowledge (laughs) (laughs) it's just never like
1: you'll never know everything oh but a lot of these statistics came from that study and that was again georgia south carolina and alabama So, the behavior there could be totally different for Ohio, Illinois, Maine, you know, different areas. So, uh, I wish they would Mm. do more of these type studies and maybe, maybe they would uh, come out with more of a consensus type deal because I listened to a biologist uh, from up north and I forget what state she was representing, but uh, one of her statements was that deer in the diet of the county was not prevalent at all. In other words, they, they did not hunt deer to eat.
0: I mean, that would go right along with just the simple, if you could summarize, if I could summarize what you've taught me here tonight, it's adaptability. They just adapt period. And so up there, they've adapted to eating something else down in those three states. They've adapted to eating deer because they're available.
1: That's what I got out of it. And I'm Mm -hmm. telling you, I I come away with a little more respect for them at least. I mean, they've, they've taken the fight and survived yeah man I think well, that's
0: it. is that it Till next time everybody we appreciate you listening in if there's anything like this that you want us to dig into uh, we can't do it every week because we've got other things to do but every once in a while man we would love to dig into topics that uh, spark our interest so throw some ideas at us and we'll be happy to dig into the ones that we have time for that's for sure as always with Nature Blind School this has been Tracy Trimble Craig Cottle come on join in let's learn together